if you guys would like to, uh, to turn to Philippians 4, that's where we're going to be today, reading 1 through 7. If, if you have uh, or need a Bible, they are over there. Dave is kindly passing them out. Philippians 4, correct, and if you're in this one, it's page 909. 901, right, did I say 9? Sorry. Yeah, it's 901. Okay, so to get some blood in your legs before we start, we're going to stand up and read together. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stay true to the Lord. I love you, and I long to see you, dear friends, for you are my joy and the crown I receive for my work. Now I appeal to Yodia and Syntyche, please, beca- please, because you belong to the Lord, settle your disagreement. And I ask you, my, my true partner, to help these two women, for they worked hard with me in telling others the good news. They worked along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are written in the book of life. And then these next three verses are what we're going to be focusing on. Always be full of joy in the Lord. I say it again, rejoice. Let everyone see that you are considerate in all you do. Remember, the Lord is coming soon. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank Him for all He has done. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. You may be seated, unless you'd like to stand. Okay. I'm going to pray first, and then we'll begin. Father, I, I pray that this morning, um, more than me trying to explain things, that you will explain them to us. God, that we can't have joy, and that we can't have peace. And those won't seem like impossible things for us. I thank you for your word, and and we pray that it will um, will not only be spoken, but God, that we'll hear it. I pray it's in your name, amen. Okay, so this morning I titled the sermon, uh, Do Two Impossible Things and You'll Have Peace. And the reason for that is, I think verses 4 to 7 are asking you to do two impossible things which is to first always be joyful and to second never have anxiety because those are two things that, that we probably in our lives are both familiar with not being joyful and being anxious. So, so what is the Bible asking us to do and why would it ask us to do something that is impossible that we're going to be going through and then we'll be ending with uh, talking a little bit about Thanksgiving. This week is Thanksgiving and I think it's okay if you don't have a place to go that you can come to my parents' house. So, so do come. Um, 
So always be joyful. You all look very stern right now. I'm sure you're just concentrating. The word there is, in the Greek, it can also be translated cheer. Cheerful. And I think what is hard about that for us, what seems impossible about this passage saying, always be joyful, I say it again, rejoice. Is because we listen to that and we're like, that is a lot of work. And and you'll know that is a lot of work if you've ever been in a wedding party and taken photos with that wedding party. And I've never been the groom, and they have to take more pictures, but just being the groom's man, your your mouth is exhausted by the end of the day, right? And <laughs> but that's what we that's what we picture, right? This life of like how will how will I sustain joy year after year after year if, if this is what the Bible expects of me? First Thessalonians five sixteen: Be joyful always. Pray continually. Be thankful in all circumstances. For what this is God's will for your life. So God wills impossible things. How do we do that? Is the question. So the first, first thing I'm going um, to ask is if Paul is missing something, right? Has Paul missed this, this idea shaper of suffering? Right? It's hard for us. It's in the 21st century... And that's, that's really what we've experienced probably more than anything. Some of you experience more of the 20th century than others. But to understand how we can be joyful when usually what we dwell upon more than that is what is hard. Right? This is, is, is Paul missing that piece? Paul, how do we be joyful if there is suffering? And, and just a quick response to that is Paul understands suffering really well Paul is in prison while he's writing. So he's in a, he's in a place where he is in, uh, enchained and doesn't know if he'll die. Right? And he's, he actually speaks in the whole letter in this, in, this, uh, in this voice of expectation that he probably will die. He talks often about, about going home and being with Jesus soon. So he's in a place of suffering and he even says in, in uh, Philippians 1.30, he says, I'm in the midst of struggle. So that's where Paul is when he's writing, rejoice. I say it again, rejoice. And I think that's helpful too. My dad preached last week, if you were here on Romans 12, uh, the end of it. And it, it says, let your love be without hypocrisy. And so we're also not talking about that, right? We're not talking about this, this fabricated joy that we dread when we think of going to a lot of churches. Right, you go there and you're like, uh, "There's a song and says, uh, I hear the church bells ringing, they peel out your praise. The people's faces were smiling, um, with their hands outstretched to praise." Um, and then he just goes on. He's talking about the hypocrisy that he sees as a band paid with the line. And it's interesting because he's like, um, he goes, and I just long to hear again people ransomed from the fall, right? He said, I still believe you, but some days I just don't love you at all. Right? That's, this is this, this uh, musician trying to wrestle through. Why is it that oftentimes what we see is just this, this attempt at joy when 
I, I've heard this story about, about people who are getting saved, and I think that's good. I like that. But, but how do we experience true joy? And so, uh, this is the task before us for our first impossible thing. How do we experience joy always if we live in this world where what we experience most often is hypocrisy or, or something else, especially when it's related to joy found in Christ? So, the first joy he talks about, um, I believe, is this joy. He says, uh, let your... Let everyone see that you're considerate in all you do. And then he says, the Lord is coming soon. And so the first is, let everyone be cons- see that you're considerate, that you consider others in what you do. And what has brought Paul joy throughout the whole letter of Philippians he's written so far is the church. And I think that should be, really should be, a reason for rejoicing for people. Uh, if you'd, I'm just going to read some of the verses that he's gone through already, and you can hear what brings Paul joy, even though he is in suff- he is in prison, waiting to die. It says every time I, he's right, he's writing this right at the beginning, uh, chapter one, verse three. He says, "Every time I think of you, I give thanks to God. Whenever I pray, I make requests for all of you with joy, for you have been my partners in spreading the good news about Christ." From the time you first heard it until now, I am certain that God who began the good work within you will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Jesus Christ returns. Get this, he says, and it is right for me to feel this way because you have a special place in my heart. I said, what's bringing Paul joy? He's like, I have joy just thinking about you guys. You have a special place in my heart. He's really sentimental at this point. Um, but I think it's, it's beautiful to look at because he's fond of these people in Philippi. And they bring him joy just to know that they're there. And, and maybe not because they are a perfect church, and we'll talk more about that in a second, but because he says, I'm, I'm positive that God who began a good work in you is going to finish that work in you. Right? And he says later, not that, you've, not that I or you've attained perfection yet, but that we press on towards that, and we're pressing on together towards that. So he who began a good work is faithful to complete it. And we have works in progress here. That are, <laughs> I can think of so many of you, and, and one of you, which is not here, I'll talk about. <laughs> I was actually hoping you'd be here. But Mike Joyce, right? I, I mean, immediately this came to mind. Mike Joyce... If you met him a year ago, is Mike Joseph upstairs? I didn't even see him come in. That's great. Well, you can tell him I talked about him. Right, Mike Joyce, this work that God began in him, right, from gangbanger Mike Joyce to Mike Joyce who just gives people hugs now, right? Right, it's, It's weird. We don't ask him to give people hugs, but he likes doing that. Right? God who began a good work in him is faithful to complete. And you can see it. God completing his good work in him. And we have that all over the place here. Right? This is, I, I heard somebody talk about this once, and he, he called it evidences of grace. Right? That you could look around this church and see evidences of grace, and usually miss out on it because we're looking for evidences of failure. 
Right? Oh, do you see that person raising their hands? You know what they did last week? Right? Oh, do you see this? Do you see that? Do you remember when? Right? You're not looking for evidences of grace. If you're looking for evidences of grace, you're going to be like, man, do you see the way that person just helped that person? That was incredible. Or, or I'm just going to call this person because, you know, I was just thinking of them. Right? And that's beautiful. But we're not looking for evidences of grace. Paul was looking for evidences of grace in Philippi, which was not a perfect church. And he says, I just think of you and I'm happy. So look for that. It's a means of constant joy for those who set out to do it. Right? Looking for evidences of grace rather than evidences of failure. In 2.19 he says, If the Lord Jesus is willing, I hope to send Timothy to you soon for a visit. Then he can cheer me up by telling me how you are getting along. Right, so he's like, I'm not only going to write you a letter, but I'm going to send somebody just to see how you're doing. I can't because I'm in prison. Otherwise, I would come. He said, I thought I would send uh, Epaphroditus back to you. He is a true brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier. He, has your, he was your messenger to help me in my need, and I'm sending him because he has been longing to see you. And he was very distressed because you heard that he was ill. This is verse 25. But God had mercy on him and also on me that I would not have one sorrow on another. So it's like this communication going on between Paul and Philippi that they sent him a messenger and he's sending one back. And he's like, I'm going to send him back because you heard he was sick and you were worried about him. And I'm glad he didn't die because I would have been like depressed for years if he died. Right? So you get this real sense of, of just love and longing in, in between Paul and this church. And you hear that in, in four, uh, 4, 5, when he says, let everyone see that you're considerate of each other. That consideration, that evidences of grace and looking for it in each other will lead to rejoicing in your life. And ending in four one, which where we started, my dear brothers and sisters, stay true to the Lord. I love you and long to see you, dear friends, for you are my joy and crown I've received for my work. That's it. That is his means for rejoicing. Because I love you. That is amazing. Uh, quick points on that is that Philippi was not a perfect church. It goes on right, to, right, right after it says, I appeal now that these two women who have been arguing with each other would stop. It's like, they've been along with me in preaching the gospel, helping out, but now they're conflicting. And it doesn't say why they're conflicting. It could have been that they wore the same sweater the same day and just were upset about it. Right? That happens. Or one of them gossiped about somebody else, and then somebody else told them, and then somebody else got in on it. Right? <laughs> That's totally possible. But they're, they're bickering. What does he say? I appeal. Right? I love you guys. You're my joy. Please stop arguing. Right? These two women who are, are bickering, just, I, as a church, surround them. Just help them stop. We, just, we don't want that. We are not a perfect church. Right? So when, you're, when you think, well, my church doesn't bring me joy, we're not a perfect church. Okay? So if you ever talk to a friend or are telling them about church, don't pretend like we're a perfect church. 
But hopefully we're a church that is learning to rejoice together and seeing the evidences of grace, what God is doing as you're considering each other, praying for each other, and, and becoming a church that, that ultimately shares uh, in the life of Jesus together. So that's who we are. So if we're not, if we're not perfect... How do we share in constant joy is the question. And it says, um, in a commentary that I read, he said, Joy in God is of great consequence in the Christian life, and Christians need to be again and again called to it. And this was interesting, because I, I was reading this, and I wrote it out. And when I wrote it out the first time, I just wrote, Joy is of great consequence to the Christian life. I went back and I was like, uh, I think that's missing something. And it was. I, I forgot to write, joy in God is a consequence of the Christian life. Right? But this is, this is interesting because this is usually what we do. We, we create joy. We, we set up joy as being this elusive goal. Right? Well, why aren't you having joy? Why aren't you happy? Right? As if, as if happiness is something you can just turn on. Right? Well, why aren't you doing that? But that should never be the place of the church, just to be like, buck up. But the place of the church is that joy in God is of great consequence to the Christian. Um, Joy by itself, uh, just as a word, doesn't have a lot of context. When we were driving, we drove to Yakima yesterday, uh, a few of us, there was a wedding over there. And right before you get on the Narrows Bridge, there's a sign with a, a flag waving behind it, you know, one of those really patriotic ones. And it says, get this, faith, hope, love, colon, freedom, and justice. It's like, thanks, right, for giving me a bunch of words together, right? That's what we do. We, we set up these words, freedom, justice, faith, hope, love, right? And we're like, whoo, but really, where's the context of that? Is the American flag the context for that? What's the context? <laughs> joy has no context in the life of a Christian apart from God. Okay, so it's not just like, go be happy. But we try to do that, right? Why aren't you happy? That's of no encouragement to somebody. Just to ask them why they're not happy. Because <laughs> there's probably a lot of good reasons why they're not happy. <laughs> so where does joy come from? Um, this is a quote, I, I'm going to read you guys a quote really quick from Diedrich Bonhoeffer. He wrote a book, Life Together, and, and I noticed interesting parallels between his work and Paul's writing, because Diedrich Bonhoeffer was also in prison under the, the Nazis. Uh, he was a German pastor, and he ended up getting hanged a month before uh, the war ended. And so he is a man awaiting, just like Paul was awaiting uh, the end of his life. And get this, this is what he says, innumerable times a whole Christian community has broken down because it had sprung from a wish dream. The serious Christian set down for the first time in a Christian community is likely to bring with him a very definite idea of what Christian life together should be and will try to realize it. But God's grace speedily shatters that dream. Just as surely as God desires to lead us to a knowledge of genuine fellowship, so surely must we be overwhelmed by a great disillusionment with others, with Christians in general, 
and if we are fortunate with ourselves. The man who fashions a visionary ideal of community demands that it be realized by God, by himself, and by others. Right? So, what he's saying is, whether it's these joy, freedom, liberty, all these things, he says we set up wish dreams. Like, like as, as if you guys could all write down what your favorite church would look like. And then we just try to mold around that. Right? That's what we do. So we set up these wish dreams, and then we come to church, and we come to these things, and we're like, well, it doesn't match my wish dream. And it says, God in his mercy shatters your wish dreams. Right? And then he sets up in the place of those, those dreams we have that, that oftentimes are just built upon self-centered thinking, like what I'd like, what I need, what I think I need. God sets up something far more true. And that's what we find in, in the NIV says, the Lord is near. In the NL, uh, NLT, which we read, right, it said, remember that the Lord is coming soon. And they, they put that in a way to, to say like the, that he, he will be coming again soon. Um, and it really could be read either way, that he's either coming soon or he's just present here. And, I, and I, we're going to take it as just being present here, because I think, I think that's probably the more accurate reading of it. And, that, and we get this context of, of our joy being not only in the community, but the community finding its identity, its joy in God himself. And we find that in Paul, in Philippians, when he writes in 121. He says, For me to live is Christ." And dying is even better. If I live, I can do more fruitful work for Christ. So I really don't know which is better. I'm torn between these two desires. I long to go and be with Christ, which would be far better for me. But for your sake, it is better that I continue to live knowing this. I'm convinced that I will remain alive so I continue to be of help to you. Grow your growth and experience the joy of your faith. So Bonhoeffer continued to, to write, and, and we'll read a little more of his quotes. One of them he talked about was, and I agree with this fully, he says that, that if we look to our history and, po- and the possibility maybe of joy in our own lives, there might not be a lot of reason for it. For some of you there might be. Some of you might have had very easy lives, and that's wonderful. Um, truly it is. Um, but some of you might not find just <laughs> offhand uh, reasons to rejoice. And but he says, in Christ, external to ourselves, we find a message of salvation that brings joy. And we have to find it in Christ, because if we find our joy in ourselves, that joy will always be something that will be taken away very easily. Um, And he prepares us for this. Jesus prepares us for this in, in John sixteen thirty three. And this is important to remember because oftentimes we build our ideas even of Christianity upon, upon um, the, the wish dream that when we become Christians, then it means um, comfort in some way. And, and John 16 says it differently. He says, I have said to you that in me you may have peace, is what Jesus is saying. But in this world, you will have tribulation. 
But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Right? What does that sound like? Sounds like Paul. Right? Be happy. Rejoice. But in this world you will have tribulations. Right? But, but why? Why can you rejoice? Because I have overcome the world. Paul goes on in Philippians in 3. He says, There will be some that will try to encourage you to live by your own righteousness. He says, but, but I thought I could do that, he says, Paul's writing. He says, because I, I did everything that I thought I could. Right? I kept the law. I only walked so far on Sundays. All these things he thought he could do to find righteousness in himself and then maybe finally find satisfaction in himself. And he says, but all these things I now consider rubbish because I've met Jesus. And he just started finding his life in Jesus. Something that was far more stable. And he was so passionate about this that this that that in when he had joy, it was because Christ was doing something not only in his life, but in the life of those around him, because he saw it in the church, and he saw the evidences of grace in the church, and he was just stoked about it. He's like, I see that the, the good work that began in me is also this good work that's began in you. But then he goes on, and get this, it's beautiful. In 3.18 he says, I've told you before, and I say it again with tears in my eyes, that there's many who live as enemies of the cross. Right? So, so where, and on one hand, he's like, I have joy because of the cross. He's like, I am also crying because there are people that are living as enemies of the cross. And he sees that now, the only place we can find joy is through the man Jesus Christ. And so, joy in community is the first thing we've found. Um, the first impossibility, I think, can be overcome how can we find joy? I think you guys can find it by really becoming a part of the, the Christian community. <laughs> and that scares the hell out of some of you. That's okay. But those people around you, I want you to start seeing that God who began a good work in you and you're beginning to trust that, right? That maybe he has began a good work in me. I'm I'm getting excited about it. Maybe he's doing that in other people too. Right? And that can be a means of huge joy for you to begin to share that together. Right? You're not not sharing personal perfection together, but you're sharing the perfection of Christ that he's offered you through his work on the cross. And you're beginning to share it together. Why? Because God is near. He's the one offering that to you. So that's on a public level. The second one... The second impossibility is, is really, it's cool because he deals with it on more of like, than a very personal level. And this is what uh, Bonhoeffer says as he's writing on Christian fellowship in prison. And I think this will be really interesting to you. It was to me. He says, we recognize then that only as we are within fellowship can we be alone. And only that he that is alone can live in fellowship. Only in fellowship do we learn to rightly be alone and alone, and only in aloneness do we learn to live rightly in fellowship. And you guys think that's a riddle, but it's not. And he begins to explain why. He says, Each by itself, aloneness and being together, has its profound pitfalls. One who f- wants fellowship without solitude 
plunges into a void of words and feeling, right? So for people that are just like, all of a sudden just like, I need to be around people, like I just need community, right? It's like our code word for just never listening and just always talking. And one who seeks solitude without fellowship perishes in the abyss of vanity and self-infatuation and despair, right? So we can also go to this other end of like, like I just need to be alone and just think and all the time, right? But I think... In what Paul's writing, we really need both. And he begins to explain it. He says, um, Let him who cannot be alone beware of community. Let him who is not in community beware of being alone. Along with the day of Christian family fellowship, together there goes the lonely day of the individual. And so this is just dealing with it on the reality of both levels. There's times, when, like this morning, so hopefully you can be together and you can enjoy each other. There will be a day, maybe this afternoon, when you're alone. <laughs> And what do you do with that time? And that's why he introduces the second impossibility, which is don't be anxious about anything. Don't worry about anything. Because I think we tend towards that more when we have our times alone. I think that's true. I won't, I won't ask for a show of hands, but cherish that in your heart. All right. Times alone is usually when we feel anxiety. Because I think it's easiest for us to justify in our own minds anxiety when we are alone, right? <laughs> Whatever it sounds like to you, like, you know, if, if Daniel only know what, if he only knew what I was going through, then he would understand why I have anxiety, right? Well, if God really, if God cares, then he'll understand this anxiety that's in my life, this thing that I'm wrestling through. And, and I think... Paul's response to that doesn't appear helpful at first. And his response is, pray. Right? And, and why that doesn't at first appear helpful is because usually our view of prayer is, is this like last minute ditch effort, like, I've heard this works, and so I'm going to do it. Right? Like, okay, I'm here. God, if you're there. Right? That's that sort of interaction that we're probably very familiar with. Um, prayer, uh, <laughs> prayer is probably, if we're looking for easy comfort, is not the place that we want to follow Jesus to. Because if you think about it in this, in this movement from of Jesus' life, prayer was the first place blood was drawn from him, right? Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed and he wept, and from his forehead ran drops of blood, right? That he was in such agony at this moment of prayer, right? And so prayer isn't this immediate, like, I do it, and then all of a sudden you get this, this like, Touched by an angel experience. Ian Bounds says, Prayer is not a little habit pinned on us while we are tied to our mother's apron strings. But it is the most serious work of our most serious years. Prayer is a taxing work, and men are loath to do it. Praying, true praying, costs an outlay of serious attention of time which flesh and blood do not relish. So real, real praying, right? When we begin to invest in prayer and, 
and not only speak, but listen to God and ask for direction. Um, it sounds very... Um, it takes time, all right? When we're not only speaking, but we're listening and waiting for God to communicate with us. Um, when Bonhoeffer was in prison, what he recommended, he says, was praying Scripture, Right? Because he says, Scripture will encourage us not to pray from our own emptiness, which we can oftentimes do. If we just begin praying and we're just like, we're like backing up the dump truck onto God, right? Which it can sometimes feel like. Rather than saying, God, how do I, how do I even pray in a way that honors you? That I'm just not trying to honor myself in these prayers, praying from my own emptiness. How do we do that? Um... And I think praying itself can become a transforming experience for us. Uh, If you've ever tried to pray for someone who you're in a disagreement with and not pray against them but a blessing on them, I think you'll find that it's very transforming. Um, And that's part of the prayer. Pray with petition and thanksgiving is what Paul recommends. And... I had this really transforming experience a few years back. There was somebody I, was, I knew, and I was having a hard time with them. And, and they had this car. It was a very distinct car. It was a model of car. And every time I saw that same model, it was never them because they lived long ways away. But I would, I would begin, I'd prayed, and this, this probably sounds like a weird habit, but I really would pray, and I would, I would pray, like, <laughs> it was really hard, but I, I began praying, like, God, would you bless this person? Like, I know... I don't see it, maybe. Like, I, I know they are your child. And that was transforming for me. It was really, really hard when I started doing it. Um, but as we begin praying and setting ourselves before God and not just unloading, but beginning to listen and say, God, what is your heart? What might be your heart for this person? What might be your heart for this situation? I'm not just going to sit here and be like, well, five minutes has gone by, you know. I see you've got something better to do with your time. No. <laughs> what does real prayer look like? Consider that. What does it really look like to, in, to listen to God, to wait? Isaiah 40, right at the end of it, it says, Those who wait upon the Lord, will, He will renew their strength. But we don't wait anymore. <laughs> right? We're so impatient. What does it look to wait upon the Lord? Wait long. Would that mean days? Would that mean years? Are you willing to wait that long for an answer? All right. So don't be anxious about anything, but in everything with prayer and petition and with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And this will be transforming for you because it requires trusting in God. Most of us pray prayers that are not trusting in God, I think. They're just like, I don't know if it's like, it's this slot machine mentality or what, but, but we just like expect something rather than really saying, God, I'm going to honor you by saying I do trust in you and I'm willing to wait and hear your response for this and trust that he will take care of that and that will be transforming. It will be healing for you even. This last part of uh, Thanksgiving um, it, it almost, if you read the text, it almost feels like a, a tag on to it. Okay, and with Thanksgiving. Um, <laughs> I thought of it like, you know, a mom with a little boy, and she's like, Bobby, what do you tell the nice man? 
You know, like this. He's like, thank you. You know, that's like what it seems like in our lives sometimes. Like, I don't really know why, but... But if, if we come from the beginning of the verse to the end of, the, of these, this section of verses, what do, we, what do we find ourselves with? Where does joy come from, right? And I've learned not to rely on my self-righteousness for joy, right? Not to, uh, not to look at myself and find the best parts of me and then, then rely upon joy there. But first to see who Jesus is and what he offers. And that is something, that is where Thanksgiving begins, right? You can take this into our week of Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving doesn't just depend on your feelings. We go through this all the time, but I really encourage you to think about Thanksgiving in this way. Increasingly, to appreciate what Jesus has done for you, um, external to yourself, right? And it's something that then you get to participate in. So Thanksgiving literally is, in our lives, a participation in something else that's going on. Anytime you say thank you, it's in a relationship of some sort. Right? And so with with Jesus, there's there's that constant ability to be giving thanks. And then it says, and then the peace of God, this is NIV and it says, but then the peace of God, which transcends understanding, will guard your hearts and mind in Christ Jesus. And you're guarded. Why? Because it's not merely you trying to fabricate joy or get rid of anxiety, but it's literally you coming to Jesus Christ, who is offering something to you, and say, oh, I'm thankful for that. Okay, we're gonna, I'm going to wrap it up here really quick with... Uh, with application, what this looks like in our lives. Um, because this has been something I, I'm going to confess to you that's been hard for me in the past of, of this, this combo of joy and peace. Uh, and some of you guys know this really well. Like, There's a bookstore called Joy and Peace. And I always joked around how we should open one next door to it called Suffering and Sorrow. Because so I was like, because that would just, you know, people would get more out of it, right? <laughs> or, right, there's this song, uh, Trading My Sorrows, and it's like, I'm trading my sorrows. Right, and then the chorus is just, yes, Lord, yes, Lord. Right? And I never sing it. I don't. And the reason why, because I'm like, <laughs> like, the reason why is because I, when we come to Jesus, it's not like we get rid of sorrow, Right? There's a lot of, Paul's like, I grieve because there's people that don't understand this, right? Because I love Jesus, there might be conflict in my life, right? Simply because of that, because there's a lot going on that I see daily that just doesn't, doesn't match up, and it's hard. So, for, for my, um, my difficulty with it, I found today, as I was, as I was finishing up this joy and peace, and Paul's like, you need these things. So how do, we, how do we not go around it, but not be cheap with it? Really, how do we, how do, we do that? Um, and there is a story I'll share with you guys. From um, It's from an old book I read. I, it was from a man named Richard Wubrand, and, and we quote him sometimes, uh, who it was 14 years in solitary confinement in Romania, um, under the communists, 
And he tells this story about, uh, it was like a dream somebody had. And, and in this dream, they saw an army marching. And at the front, it was these, these soldiers in, in line marching on in perfect file, polished, starched uniforms, and they were marching. And he said there was, everything seemed right about them. But as they marched on, uh, the, the army be, became more disheveled, and, and their, their uniforms were torn, and they were, um, they were bleeding, and they, were, they had obviously been in conflict. And by the end, the people that were there together were just this ragtag bunch of soldiers that were just leaning on each other, and we're singing hymns, and we're just marching on. And it's this difference, right? And as I was thinking about this, I, that, that is it, right? That peace and joy is not this army of Christians that are marching forward with starched uniforms, you know, just perfect distance from each other so we don't get in each other's bubbles, marching forward, right? And that's how we envision it. Like, come to church, and we're going to have our three songs, and... And then you're going to feel good and say hi to somebody. Right? That's, that, isn't, that isn't it. So what is it? It's that band of people that have been in conflict together, really, that are singing, right? that, that enjoy each other. And their fellowship has come not by a command, a vague command to be joyful and have peace. But it's knowing that Him who's gone before us, Christ who's been crucified... Right? And that is who we find our fellowship in. Right? The truth of that, that Jesus loved me and he gave himself for me. And that is something that though you might be put in prison like Paul, though you might just have a hard day of work, right? whatever it be, that you can have fellowship together in Christ Jesus because of that. And, and that is your bond, Right? And I encourage you guys, even as you give encouragement to the other, don't be cheap with it, right? Don't just be like, why aren't you happy? <laughs> right? That's why that's, Jesus didn't look from heaven and be like, why aren't you guys happy? Right? But he came down. And, and this is what our whole gospel rests upon, is Jesus coming down, becoming one of us, suffering for us, so he could take those things that we can spend a long time in prayer giving to him. And so to conclude, I'm going to read to you John 16 again. I've said to you this, that you may have peace. In this world you have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I'll say it again, rejoice. I've overcome the world. Right, so hold on to that. Look for evidences of grace in each other. And, uh, and really, especially as you go in this week of Thanksgiving, you have so much to be thankful for. Um, Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you that our fellowship is in you. Um, you are, um, as in the Psalms it says, that you yourself are our strong tower. Um, in 46 it says that you are a refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. And... Uh, God, and I pray that, that the love of our hearts will be to exalt you 
and share you with each other. Um, this will be something very real for the church as we learn to share this together. I pray that that maybe false gospels that we've been told ourselves will be will be put away as we begin just to look upon Christ again and love Him. Love that He saves us. And that it's not our own righteousness that does that. And God, we, we pray this in Your name. Amen.